Welcome back to 10 and 20, the official podcast of the Battle of Franklin Trust, where we talk about interesting aspects of Tennessee history in roughly 20 minutes. My name's Sarah. And my name's Brad. This is part two of our two-part series on Andrew Johnson. Last week, we covered Johnson's rise from illiterate tailor's apprentice to influential Tennessee politician. We concluded with a hungover, drunk, and potentially ill Andrew Johnson preparing to take the stage and deliver his inaugural address as president on March 4th, 1865. Needless to say, with that introduction, Johnson's inaugural speech was a fiasco. (laughs) It was a rambling speech about his humble origins, his rise to power, and a reminder to the cabinet that their power derived from the people. At one point in the speech, Johnson forgot the name of one of his cabinet members, and he asked in a loud whisper, which could be heard by the audience, uh, what was the name of the Secretary of the Navy? (laughs) Yeah, not very smooth. No. Sensing the awkwardness, Hannibal Hamlin, who, remember, is the guy Johnson is taking over for, tugged on Johnson's sleeve, trying to get him to shut up. This effort failed. Yeah. Senator Zachariah Chandler described this whole scene like this. He said, The inauguration went off very well, except that the vice president-elect was too drunk to perform his duties and disgraced himself and the Senate by making a drunken, foolish speech. I was never so mortified in my life. Had I been able to find a hole, I would have dropped through it out of sight. End quote. Why did he start with, the inauguration went off well? Well, Except. You have to say, like, you know, it's like when you insult someone. When you give constructive criticism, you always have to say, like, the Oreo. The two good things with the bad thing in the center. I guess so. He was, he's definitely an Oreo reviewer. Throughout the whole speech, it was said that Lincoln himself sat there with an expression of, unutterable sorrow and that senator charles sumner covered his face with his hands and i think one of the most amazing things about this scene is that right after johnson's speech lincoln then delivered his own inaugural address sometime later but in front of the u.s capitol building and you just have to compare the speeches between the two men because after the embarrassment of johnson's spectacle lincoln went on to deliver one of the most eloquent speeches of his career And his speech is very concise and to the point, not rambling at all. Right. And I just wanted to include the last two paragraphs because they're so iconic. This is after years of war. Lincoln says, quote, Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet, if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And he goes on to say, With malice towards none and charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, Let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle, and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. That's one of the most famous speeches, I think, in presidential history, really, and Mm -hmm. it still, I think, resonates. Especially considering that followed up directly after Johnson's fiasco. Fiasco, yeah. 
And Andrew Johnson's tenure as vice president was short-lived. Just over a month later, on April 14, 1865, Abraham Lincoln was assassinated while attending a play in Washington, D.C. He died the next day. The same day that Lincoln was shot down, a conspirator named George Astorot, or Atzerat, was set to assassinate Andrew Johnson as well, but ended up getting drunk at the hotel bar where Johnson was staying, and he never went through with the plan. Between 10 and 11 a.m. on April 15, 1865, Andrew Johnson was sworn into the presidency by Supreme Court Justice Salmon P. Chase. Andrew Johnson entered the presidency in one of the most trying moments in American history. The Civil War had raged for four years, Robert E. Lee had surrendered, and the rest of the Confederacy was breathing its last breaths, and the president who had led the country through all of this had just been killed. On top of all that, nearly four million formerly enslaved people were now free, and the president would be tasked with figuring out what exactly freedom meant for all those freedmen. Johnson had three goals to his presidency. One, restore the southern states back to the Union. Two, ensure that the wealthy southern aristocracy did not return to power, and instead the power should be with who Johnson referred to as the plebeians, meaning commoners, and three, attain a re-election in 1868. Now you notice, notoriously absent in Johnson's goals were definitive plans on what should be done with the nearly four million formerly enslaved people. He had really no goals for providing civil rights or voting rights to former slaves. He also allowed the new governments to set up in the former Confederate states to enact black codes, which severely regulated and restricted the African-American communities. Yeah, this was really the, the origin of the Jim Crow era. Um, and he kind of just let that happen. He let mm -hmm. that take hold. Making things even more complicated was the fact that Andrew Johnson was a Democrat and Congress was controlled by the Republican Party. Many Republicans felt that voting rights and other civil rights should be at the top of the list of things that needed to be accomplished with the war finally over. These Republicans, specifically known as the Radical Republicans, were constantly at odds with Andrew Johnson. After attaining the presidency, Johnson began working on the first of his goals, restoring the southern states back into the Union. Southern states began organizing new governments in the months after the Civil War, which included voting in new congressmen. Many of those new congressmen were familiar faces. Included amongst them was Alexander Stevens, former vice president of the Confederacy. When Congress reconvened in December of 1865, the radical Republicans refused to seat the newly elected Southern congressman. I mean, imagine that we just finished the war, and this guy who was the vice president of the Confederacy... The um, rebelling state. Yeah, and the guy who was, I mean, if you look up Alexander Stevens' cornerstone speech and you see this this guy who was, I mean, he was a secessionist and a white supremacist through and through, and he's getting ready to sit back down in the halls of Congress, and the radical Republican Congress is just like, nope, we're not going to call your name. We're not going to let you sit down. And Johnson opposed this. He, he opposed the Republican Party on a variety of other issues as well. He voted against the continuation of the Freedmen's Bureau, an organization which was formed to assist the newly freed enslaved people with employment and housing and really just contract representation. He vetoed the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which was intended to grant citizenship and equal protection to anyone born in the United States. 
He strongly opposed the 14th Amendment, which was intended to do the same thing as the Civil Rights Act, plus other things like restricting many former Confederates from elected office. During the midterm elections of 1866, Johnson campaigned for his preferred candidates, which many of them were Democrats, in a nationwide speaking tour known known as his Swing Around the Circle. On this tour, he hoped to drum up public support for his Reconstruction policies. To win the public over, he brought along U.S. war heroes like David Farragut, George Custer, and most notably, Ulysses S. Grant, who was probably the most beloved man in the country. Johnson delivered a standard speech at many of the stops. He made sure the public knew he was for preserving the Union. He told of his rise from humble beginnings as a tailor to his ascendancy into office. He offered to compare himself to Jesus, noting his capacity for pardoning sinners. Right. So he's already been Moses, and now he's Jesus. Yeah. Probably a good rule when you're touring for speeches is not to compare yourself to Jesus. Right. He he actually received pretty positive coverage for the first portion of his tour. And then things went very, very wrong. On September 3rd, 1866, during a stop in Cleveland, Ohio, portions of the crowd gathered began to heckle the president. One of them shot out, hang Jeff Davis. Jeff Davis being Jefferson Davis, the former president of the Confederacy. So Johnson replied, why don't you hang Thad Stevens and Wendell Phillips? Which for reference, Thad Stevens was perhaps the most notable radical Republican Congress, and Wendell Phillips was a well-known abolitionist and proponent for Native Americans. So the sitting president just called on an angry mob to assassinate a member of the House of Representatives. Yeah, after this speech, Johnson's supporters told him to calm himself down and maintain his dignity. And Johnson's response is gold. He said, I don't care about my dignity. Well... Given his, you know, inaugurational speech. <sighs> and that line, I don't care about my dignity, was reported nationwide. So that's got to be in one of the biggest lists of presidential gaffes saying you don't care about your dignity. From that point on, the swing around the circle took a turn for the worst. Crowds grew increasingly hostile. And at one event, gunfire broke out and an attendee was killed. And at some stops, attendees start to call out for Ulysses S. Grant to speak, rather than Andrew Johnson. And this is the worst part of it. It it all ends in this this horrific incident on September 14th, 1866, in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. There was a platform built for the occasion, which hundreds were standing on, and it came crashing down. And this platform drained into a canal 20 feet below, so hundreds of people plummeted 20 feet. Johnson tried to get the train to remain to help the wounded, but due to conflicts with incoming traffic, they had to move on. And this event would lead many to view Johnson as someone who had cruelly abandoned the public. And Johnson's public image was tarnished badly as a result of this tour. Republicans won even more control of Congress after the elections. Johnson found himself in a position where he was completely at odds with the Republican Party that controlled Congress. Johnson vetoed many of the bills they sent to him, but because the Republican Party controlled both chambers of Congress, they were able to pass them anyway. The Republican Party was also growing increasingly frustrated over the president's actions 
especially what he did while they were not in session. And on March 2, 1867, Congress enacted the Tenure of Office Act. This act restricted the power of the president to suspend certain office holders while the Senate was not in session. This was a relatively small window of time during that year, and the Senate would have to ratify any removals that took place during this time period. And if they failed to do so, then the president would have to reinstate them. Johnson vetoed the Tenure of Office Act, but Congress was able to enact it over his veto by a vote of two-thirds of each House of Congress. Now, it should also be mentioned, eventually the Supreme Court did decide that the Tenure of Office Act was unconstitutional, but... For a brief moment, it was actually enacted and the Tenure of Office Act stood. Johnson grew increasingly frustrated with his war secretary, Edwin Staten. Edwin Staten and General Ulysses S. Grant continually undermined Johnson's plans for reconstructing the rebellious states. Staten refused to resign from his position, fearing that the office he held was too important to allow Johnson to pick a replacement. So we almost have like this game of chicken, where Johnson wants to fire Stanton, and Stanton doesn't really want the job, but they're he, kind of pushing each other's buttons. Yeah, he thinks he's a better alternative to whoever may come next. Right, and if he stays in the office, it could trick Johnson into violating the Tenure of Office Act. Congress then passed the Reconstruction Act, taking away the president's control over the U.S. Army in the South. Johnson, of course, vetoed this act, but Congress again was able to overrule it. So he's really not able to do much of anything. Not that... It would have been good had he gotten to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish, but he wasn't even able to do that. Johnson responded by demanding Edwin Stanton's resignation, but Stanton refused to quit. Johnson suspended Stanton until the next meeting of Congress, according to the rules of the Tenure of Office Act. Congress refused to accept the president's firing of Edwin Stanton. Johnson dismissed him anyway and appointed Lorenzo Thomas to replace him. And on February 24th, 1868, the House of Representatives impeached the president for violating the Tenure of Office Act. Now we should say something about impeachment. Impeachment is not the same thing as removal from office. The House of Representatives puts together a list of potential offenses the individual has committed, known as the Articles of Impeachment. The House then votes on each article, and then on the list as a whole. If a simple majority of the House votes to impeach, then the articles of impeachment are sent to the Senate. In order to actually remove the president from office, the Senate has to confirm the impeachment by a two-thirds supermajority. In Johnson's impeachment case, the Senate deliberated for three months. In search of an acquittal, Johnson made promises of what he would do. Uh, one of which was to install John M. Schofield as War Secretary in Stanton's place. Which, if you are listening to the podcast and don't know who John M. Schofield is, we have utterly failed you. <laughs> but if you don't, you should come for a tour at Carter House or Carnton because he was the U.S. Army commander in the Battle of Franklin. The final vote was a close call, but the Senate fell one vote short of removing President Johnson from office. And here's kind of the crazy thing about impeachment. Since the Senate failed to confirm the impeachment, or the removal, Johnson was able to continue his term as president, and had he had public sympathy, he could have ran again for president. Like, impeachment doesn't really mean anything. But the damage had already been done. Johnson's reputation was tarnished, and his dream of quick and easy reconstruction was dashed. Although I don't know where he got that dream from anyway, no. judging from, like, the whole entire war. Right. But his presidency was saved. 
In the days following his impeachment, though, the Republican Party put out one final nail in the coffin of Johnson's ambition for a second term in office. On May 21st, 1868, just five days after the Senate acquitted President Johnson, the Republican Party nominated Ulysses S. Grant as their candidate for the presidency. Which, if you remember earlier, in our last episode, he is one of the most beloved people in America at this time. Yeah. It, really, in the years after the war, before the election of 1868, everybody knew Ulysses S. Grant was going to be president. Everybody except for Andrew Johnson, it seems. <laughs> Johnson campaigned for the Democratic presidential nomination. He did still have quite a bit of support among white Southerners, who looked at Johnson as their protector and defender of white supremacy, but this was not enough. He lost the nomination to New York Governor Horatio Seymour. Some of Johnson's final acts as presidents were to delay the ratification of the 14th Amendment, which, among other things, granted citizenship to former slaves. Johnson never endorsed Horatio Seymour, despite the Democratic Party trying multiple times to get him to do so. On Christmas Day, 1868, well, Johnson was a lame duck president, after Grant had been elected, the still President Johnson issued amnesty to all former Confederates, including Jefferson Davis. And when Grant was inaugurated on March 4th, 1869, Johnson did not attend Grant's inauguration. He spent the morning in the White House, then rode away solemnly. Johnson returned home to Greenville, Tennessee. It was his first time there in eight years. Johnson almost immediately started campaigning for election as a senator, a position he eventually won in 1875. And Johnson viewed this election as vindication for the poor treatment he received as president. He held the position for less than a year. On July 28, 1875, Johnson suffered a severe stroke while staying at his daughter's farm in Elizabethton, Tennessee. For a short time, he looked as if he might recover, but he suffered another stroke on July 30th and died the next morning. He was 66 years old. And before his death, I just find this interesting, he was the only surviving former president. And earlier this year, actually, the Siena Research Institute released their findings from their 2018 poll titled American Presidents, Greatest and Worst. They conduct this poll every four years, coinciding with each presidential election. The survey asked participants to rank each president in 20 different categories, like leadership ability, handling of the economy, ability to compromise, and luck. And Andrew Johnson came in dead last with participants concluding he was the worst at court appointments, party leadership, relationship with Congress, which that one makes a lot of sense, ability to compromise, communication ability, and executive ability. Now, I have a couple thoughts on that. I can't really disagree with the results of the survey, but I feel like the one thing it ignores is the situation in which Andrew Johnson became president. Because I can really easily imagine a scenario in which Andrew Johnson goes down in history with a lot more sympathetic way. Like, he was the only Southern senator to remain loyal to the Union. And had his career played in a different way, I think we would, we would look back on him as a product of his time, but as, you know, the, when it came time to take a stand, he took a stand for the right thing. It's just that's not what happened. Because I think for all of his faults, perhaps his biggest was something completely out of control. He wasn't Abraham Lincoln. He just was really the wrong person to be president. I'll say this because I say it a lot. 
so I have to send our podcast. But if so, where kind of historians go to die? You start going down the but if category and your career tanks. History only happened one way. Yes. But if Andrew Johnson didn't become president at the worst possible time, at a time in which our country needed a leader who could look beyond the present situation and see the future impact of his decisions on the nation as a whole, maybe his career would have been just a little bit different. Unfortunately, that person was not Andrew Johnson. And so, that concludes the end of our two-part series on Andrew Johnson. Make sure you are subscribed on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss our next episode, and leave us a review while you're there, too. If you'd like to reach out, send us an email at podcast at boft.org or follow us on Instagram at 10in20podcast, T-E-N-N-I-N-2-0 podcast. And be sure to stop by for a tour at Carter House in Carnton. You never know, you might just get Brad or I as your guide. Thank you so much for listening. Join us again in two weeks. <laughs>